belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for October 29th, 2023 is called Frustratingly Beautiful Truth. The speaker is Shannon Barrowcliffe, and the location is Central United Methodist Church Chapel, Fayetteville, Arkansas. So about two years ago, John Ray asked me to stand before you all and teach for the first time. The verses for that Sunday were three chapters of Romans, and I remember thinking, how in the world am I not only going to cover three chapters from a somewhat controversial book, but provide any type of answers or truth? I can confidently say that each time I have been asked to stand before you, that same line of questioning and self-doubt has plagued me. This past Monday, John asked me to cover for today when his his plans changed. When I started to prepare uh, for today, I have never experienced as much doubt, confusion, fear, and tears before. I texted John about these struggles, and he responded with seven words that offered me so much comfort and released much of my anxiety towards the verse today. He said, I'd be concerned if you weren't struggling. I open up today with this background to show some vulnerability, which is really uncomfortable, but to also set the stage for our time together. I can confidently say that you won't walk out from here today or get to the end of the podcast with any pretty bows on this verse, uh, or probably any comforting answers, really. <laughs> if you're like me, you might feel a heaviness to your soul, sadness in your bones, or even experience tears of helplessness in your eyes. It's with this bleak stage set, this unconfidence proclaimed, that I welcome you this afternoon to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. (laughs) I welcome you on this journey with me as we continue our study of Exodus and continue to grapple with our text and our understanding of God. So last week, many of us were able to get away and camp at Mount Nebo, where John took us through Exodus 32. In a nutshell, God is understandably upset at Aaron and the Israelites for creating the golden calf. And subsequently, God proclaimed that he will destroy them all. Moses is quick to speak up on behalf of his people, eloquently appealing to God to change his mind, which he does. These verses demonstrate the power and intimacy of our relationship with God, something that can be quite challenging when reflecting on our own relationship and conversations with God. After John spoke last week, I walked away with two thought-provoking ideas. The first is the notion, if God wills, or in too simplistic of words, the idea that praying specific prayers or asking for specific things isn't needed because God will act as he sees fit. I didn't realize that this idea is foundational to the Islamic faith and expressed in the words, inshallah. To be quite transparent, I am walking through a season Uh, of of my faith where this idea of inshallah feels real. I came across a meme that perfectly encapsulates uh, my struggle with the role that prayer plays in our life. In the first panel, a priest is starting his sermon at a graveside service with we are gathered here today. In the second panel, the priest finishes because your prayers didn't work. Right? (laughs) In Exodus 32, we are given an example of someone pleading with God, God listening, and God changing his actions. But how often do I have that same experience with my prayers or conversations with God? 
it doesn't feel often enough. My second takeaway was the idea of risk in prayer. We have to realize that anytime we come to God in prayer or conversation, anytime we come to God um, and ask that he change his mind or act in a certain manner, we are stepping into a vulnerable state that leaves us exposed to the possibility of rejection. It's a dangerous place to put ourselves in, but it's also one full of potential. Potential beauty, potential relationship, potential healing, potential goodness. The list goes on and on. But if there's a possibility for good outcomes, that must mean there's a possibility for bad outcomes. What if our prayers or conversations are not heard or answered? What do we do with that potential? As we have been working through the book of Exodus, we have been using Walter Brueggemann's book on the topic to outline how we walk through the text. He typically grabs a single verse and expounds on the ideas being conveyed by the author of Exodus. My writing process, uh, when I prepare to teach, is to read the verse I'm assigned and just sit with any feelings that I might experience. So I want to invite you all into my process and then allow you a minute to sit with the verse. I want you to reflect on the words that you hear, the emotions that you feel, and allow um, you to feel how your body reacts. And for my own benefit, I'm going to actually set a minute timer, or I will let the silence, the awkward silence, just go too quickly. So, and you can close your eyes and do whatever that looks for you best. So, for this week, we are looking at part of Exodus 33, verse 19, which states, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. I'll say that again. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Typically, I am all for audience participation, as you know, but I'll challenge you to share your initial thoughts, feelings, and bodily reactions with someone after we're done here today, but I'll share with you what I experienced. My thoughts were along the lines of, that's not fair, which then immediately spiraled into an image of my mother repeating our family mantra of, life's not fair, as a teenager. I felt simultaneously frustrated and full of despair and my shoulders felt heavy, and my heart felt tight. I quickly concluded that I did not, in fact, want to stand before you today. How in the world am I supposed to take that verse and provide hope and good feelings to you all? 
If I've learned anything in my 18 years as a Christian, it is that verses taken out of context seem to dictate how we interact with the Word. It can mold our understanding of who God is, especially on Sundays when a single person is directing a one-way conversation. So let's take a step back and see if looking at this text with other verses helps us in our understanding and changes the way we think, feel, and experience the verse I just read. Starting in verse 15. And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. For how will it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not by your going with us, so that we will be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing also that you have requested. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. You cannot, uh, but he added, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place by me. You will station yourself on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and will cover you in my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. I don't know about you, but after reading that section, I feel a bit more grounded. Uh, Although that's not fair, that sentiment is still running super strong. In these verses, we see that Moses is seemingly reminding God, once again, of the covenant promise he made Abraham back in Genesis to eventually restore God's blessing to all nations. Even though the Israelites have now continually not adhere to God's commandments, and have flat out broken the covenant, Moses intercedes on his people's behalf and pleads for God to remember his own character and covenantal promise, which God does. Keep this recap kind of in the back of your pocket because John will be revisiting it next week when we go through Exodus 34. So I want to break this verse and the subsequent context into three parts today. The first is to do a quick study into grace and mercy. These are two words that are embedded into the Bible, foundational in our beliefs, and commonly used interchangeably. However, they are fundamentally different. I once had a pastor describe these words in an experience he had where he was pulled over by a police officer for speeding. He said the officer only gave him a warning when a ticket was justified, and that was mercy exemplified. Then the officer, seeing small children in the car, gave the kids some candy and that was grace. The illustration is a convenient one. That does quickly demonstrate mercy and grace. However, I believe it takes the weight out of the terms, especially in the way that God demonstrates the two. So let's take a look, a deeper look at the terms. And you all know I love Hebrew, so get ready. So the Hebrew word for grace is kahen, which also translates to favor. The Bible project notes that kahen, again, you're gonna get this a lot, so get ready can be used in describing beauty, favor, and action, or as an adjective. Grace says beauty is anything that induces a favorable response or something we find ourselves drawn to. It might elicit a favorable response because it is elegant or charming, or it might, or it might be because it's beautiful. Anything that we encounter that brings us delight could be called kahen. An example would be Proverbs 45.2, where a gifted poet is said to have the lips of kehen or lips of grace, 
describing how the poet's lips create beauty when used for his poetry. Grace and favor is when someone acts, asks to be treated uh, like a treasure, to be treated favorably. The phrase, to find Kahen in the eyes, is used 47 times throughout scripture and is exclusively used when someone of higher status or more power looks upon someone of lower status in favor. An example would be Genesis 39.4 with Joseph, a slave, who found Kahen in the eyes of his master Potiphar. Grace in action is basically favoring someone as an action. The word is used as a verb. In Hebrew, that word is kahanim, and you are bestowing delight, favor, or value onto someone else. The Bible Project reminds us that this, in this instance, this is always referring to an act of generosity or favor from, again, someone of that higher status to somebody of lower status. Examples could be found in Esther 4.8 and 8.3, when Esther goes before the king and asks for her people to be spared from destruction. The last way to look at grace is to look at someone's character who bestows kahen. When someone is consistently favorable towards people of lower status, they could be characterized as being full of kahen. And unsurprisingly, the person that shows the most kahunin, which is the adjective form of kahen, is God. The Bible Project states this attribute of God is his graciousness, the consistent favor he shows towards humanity, is something the Bible celebrates and is presented throughout Scripture as an undeserved gift, as the undeserved gift that it truly is. John will walk us through more of this next week in Exodus 34. I'm going to look a little bit deeper. Now, if that is too much Hebrew for you, that's fair. <laughs> we can take Brueggemann's definition for graciousness, which is the free, gratuitous, unearned yielding of self to the other. It can be seen throughout Exodus 33, so I highly encourage you to read the entire chapter in verses 12, 13, and 16, and shows that God is capable of self-giving. The Hebrew word for mercy, bear with me, rachamim, I don't know, is that right at all? <laughs> or, oh, you're more educated than all this. So it means to love tenderly, to pity, to sympathize with, and to have compassion on. Mercy includes showing kindness to those who don't deserve it and forgiving those that deserve punishment. What I find interesting about this idea of mercy is how different Jews and Christians view define and interact with the term. When researching, the definition that I just read came from the Shema Yisrael congregation out of Maryland. Notice they include the terms to love tenderly and to sympathize with. The, the Hebrew word related to the noun for womb is, uh, sorry, the Hebrew word is related to the noun for the term womb, the connection being in providing care and protection for that which is helpless and dependent, a motherly quality. Conversely, evangelical Christian definitions focus more on mercy relating to the context of God not punishing us as our sins deserve. The difference is definitely nuanced, but I think it's important to remember that in verse 19, God is, is, is describing himself. He calls himself by name and thus defines what makes him who he is. It's God's response to Moses asking him to show his glory. Or in other words, Moses is asking God to show himself fully. Before I mentioned my, uh, my former pastor's illustration for mercy and grace as a police officer's warning instead of a ticket and uh, lollipops to children. I think it's just too, too simple of an example. My hope is that with a deeper look at the original Hebrew words, 
and meanings, we can see that God bestowing mercy and grace in any, any type of capacity is greater than avoiding the speeding ticket or giving a lollipop. Brueggemann sums up the similarities and differences with both terms assert that Yahweh is capable of and ready for extended self-giving that has restorative power. The second part I want to dive into is my own response to verse 19 and this idea of unfairness that seems to continue to plague me. Under normal circumstances, I would probably not be so forthcoming with my own struggles, but this week on the teaching team call, I found that I was surrounded with others who were caught in the same conflict that I was facing, which made me feel known and less alone. Betty noted that we want certainty, but God in his word maintains mystery. Without certainty, we feel a loss of control, and just like risk in prayer, it feels like a, a very vulnerable place to be in. When I hear the words of our verse, I will be gracious to whom I will be, to who I will be gracious, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, I feel frustrated. I hear the voice of God who picks and chooses, who he shows mercy and grace, and that doesn't feel like a safe relationship. It makes me want to lean into the practice of inshallah, because what does it matter if I attempt to intercede on my behalf for others if God acts on his own whims? Thinking back to that meme on failed prayer I mentioned earlier, it is with verses like 3319 that I don't know what to do when someone comes and asks for prayer, especially when dealing with a health crisis. How am I supposed to respond when someone asks for prayer of healing with their dad who is dying of cancer? or someone who has an incurable autoimmune disorder. Why don't they get God's mercy and blessing? This conflict is hitting especially close to home for me as of late. For those that don't know, Mark and I have been experiencing infertility for the last five years. Well, it took four years to finally get an answer, um, and we have now one clear path to pregnancy, it feels like we have still been forgotten. Over the past few months, I've undergone everything needed related to IVF, and we even completed our first transfer. About a week and a half ago, we found out that it was unsuccessful. While my doctor confirmed that my body was reporting about above average levels uh, for the hormones needed to, be, to have a successful transfer and implementation, and we even used our highest value egg, the whole thing, <laughs> we were still unsuccessful. Taking God out of the equation, uh, we were still, we, we only understood that we had about a 65% chance. Like, that makes sense on a scientific level. But when I read verse 19, I, I question why I wasn't shown uh, grace by God. So how do you respond to someone who's trying to have a child? Arguably, one of the most wholesome goals someone could have in terms of God's blessings um, that doesn't sound utterly frustrating. Do you tell them that they didn't receive God's grace because it wasn't in his timing? That sounds like inshallah to me. Do you tell them that there must be something else in their life, some sin unrepented for, that resulted in the loss of a fertilized egg? Where's God's mercy? Do you tell them that they didn't pray the right, right way or ask in the appropriate manner? That sounds like legalism to me. And on and on you can go, right? Um, and nobody wins in these scenarios. And this circular argument isn't reserved um, to any asks or circumstances that can be seen as more wholesome, such as our desire to get pregnant. The circular argument can be applied uh, to almost any situation, with the most prevalent, at least for me right now, being the genocide happening in Gaza, 
where innocent people, whether Palestinian or Israeli, are being murdered senselessly. I'm frustrated. Where's God's mercy Why is he seemingly picking and shooting at random? I warned you at the beginning of our time together that this wouldn't be full of sunshine and rainbows. But I also won't leave you only with frustrations. When preparing this week, I spent a few hours in bed, lights off, Mark sleeping peacefully next to me, with my mind just spinning. I was wrestling with all these questions mentioned above and crying silent tears to God. They felt abandoned me. Excuse me. The one thing that my mind kept returning to were the words frustratingly beautiful truth. It was the one idea I could cling to with hope. I have outlined my frustration, but I also want to talk about the beautiful truth. You can find it this verse and the context around it. On Tuesday, uh, Betty mentioned the mystery that God maintains and encouraged us all to find beauty and joy in that mystery. My hope is that we can do that together. So a few years ago, I started a study with my friends where we looked at the Bible from the Jewish perspective. That is, trying to understand an Eastern point of view rather than our inward-focused um, view that Western Christianity emphasizes. One of the biggest learnings was to understand who God is in the context of the world that the Bible was written in, or said another way, the dreaded culture word. So if you go back through Genesis and Exodus, and really much of the Old Testament, there are many stories that are common stories for other religions or other texts of the time. The creation story, the language story, the flood story, etc., and there are many practices of the day that were quite common amongst people, including child sacrifice, worship practices, and the like. When those stories are orally told to the Israelites, our God is always seen as using the common language, culture, norms that everyone would understand, and then flipping that narrative. When Abraham should have sacrificed Isaac, God provided a ram instead. When God's Lord history were about absolute power, our God gave us commandments that would outline social justice and show the Israelites how to live differently from the other nations. Knowing that our God looks and acts differently from our God, from other gods, we have to cling, cling to that beautiful truth. Betty pointed out one way that God stands out. Sorry, let me restate that. So Betty pointed out that one way is for God to stand out in his own unique so if other, again, if other gods, lowercase g, are about power, order, and unchanging beliefs, then our God is about relationship. Moses' relationship echoes that of the Garden of Eden, where in the Garden, God has answers and chose not to reveal them in the form of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We see that God's relationship with Moses evolves. Moses asks for God to reveal himself, his glory, and God complies. That relationship that conversation in itself is beautiful. It's a beautiful truth. Another beautiful truth is God's own autonomy in everything. If he has given us free will, then surely he should have free will 
free will as well. In verse 19, the catalyst, and the catalyst for my frustration, is the phrase to whom, right? Brueggemann explains this phrasing well when he states, the unnamed indirect to whom means that it is not known to whom divine grace and mercy will be shown. As a result, this double statement is an assertion of God's utter freedom and the enactment of grace and mercy. God will not be compelled to act in this or that way. God will not be, uh, will also not be predicted or coerced to act in a certain way. It is a frustratingly beautiful truth. And finally, Brueggemann offers two other suggestions for God's response in verse 19. On one hand, God could be reprimanding Moses, who just uh, asked God to show him his glory. God has already revealed so much to Moses. Uh, he has changed his mind many a times, yet Moses continues to ask for more. Brueggemann writes, Yahweh asserts that grace and mercy are fully beyond subjugation to Moses' expectation. On the other hand, God's wording could also be an assurance to Moses for divine, um, for divine mercy and grace that are not earned. There are no qualifications. In these chapters, the Israelites have continued to agree to God's covenant and commandments and then turned around and broke them. Yet God listens to Moses' plea and keeps the covenant even though it is not now very much one-sided. That is a beautiful truth. And as the worship duo comes back up, I want to reread our verse from today and then read from Brueggemann's conclusion on verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The statement is enigmatic. Neither the reprimand nor the assurance is absolute because God keeps open for God alone all the options. Thus, any future that Moses might want for Israel depends completely upon the inclination of Yahweh, who is capable of grace and mercy, even to covenant violators. The holy freedom of Yahweh opens the way for Israel. It must also have left Moses frustrated, because he could not only know and be sure of that mercy and grace for Israel in time to come. So if Moses, who is intimately known by our God, can be frustrated, we can too. If Moses, who found favor in the sight of our God, can insist that God show his glory, we can too. And if Moses, who is just a person of faith, like you or me, can be vulnerable and ask for great things from God, we can too. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. If you would like to give, you can go to gracechurchnwa.org forward slash give. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.